Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Exciting days to be at Southbridge. I was telling one of our elders, I said, I feel like, you know, with the deacons launching and the stuff that we were talking about last week, uh, we're watching the church grow right before our eyes. And I don't mean like just numerically like more people coming, which welcome. We're glad all of you are coming in. That's great. Uh, but <clears throat> perfect timing. But uh, just kind of like a, almost like a teenager, like we launched the church, we were babies. And then you get to this stage where there's a growth spurt. So every once in a while I'll see some of your kids that are going to SYU. And I'm like, I think you're taller than you were last week when I saw you going into SYU. And that's kind of the the growth and development that I'm seeing happen with our church. And so excited about the deacons uh, getting launched. And if you don't know some of those people and you want to get to know them, um, then you can reach out to them personally and, and just use that affirmation card to let us know kind of your feelings on, on those folks. Those are all folks that you nominated. And so we're, we're pumped about this team and what it's going to mean for our church just in, in being better at caring for one another. And then last week I made the announcement about uh, we're going to be moving uh, from the school down to a campus on Strickland Road in the fall, Lord willing, or late, late summer. Uh, not trying to push it back every time. Uh, but uh, I said August on Sunday last week, and y'all were celebrating. We were excited about that. And then that church that's currently meeting there is going to be joining us in June. And like Vern said, some of you might have questions about that. And so today, after service, uh, we're going to be having lunch together and answering any questions you might have. Some of you may be like, I don't have any questions, but I like food. So come on over there. Uh, we'll be out there. We ordered more than the people that RSVP'd because we know that y'all don't RSVP for some reason. Um, so go ahead and come on out there. If you could tell, if you could, if you didn't RSVP, if you could kind of let other people go first, that'd be ideal though. Um, that way somebody doesn't come to me and go, RSVP, but you told them all to eat the pizza. No, I'm so sorry. God, multiply the bread. So, so here we go. Um, but we want you to come on out there. We'll just have a good time together as a church family. And if you do have some questions, we want to make sure that we can answer those and work through some of those things and then be praying together about how we can love on these people as they come to our church and then how we're going to integrate well, with one another as we go to launch together uh, in August um, this, this coming year. And so we're excited about that. But what we're going to do this morning is we took a break last week from Hosea. We're going to jump back in today. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 3. I'm going to pray for us right now and then we'll dive into the Word together, okay? We pray. Father, thank you. Uh, that we can open up your word and that you can open up our hearts, you can open up our minds, you God will move us to do things with our hands and our feet. And God, I pray that you'd transform us and that you would say something to us today that would change how we would live this week. I pray you'd say something to us today that would change how we relate with you from today moving forward in our relationship with you. God, I pray that you would speak not just through my lips, but by your spirit into our hearts through your word and have a conversation with every heart that's here today. If there's somebody who doesn't know you, I pray you bring them into the family. If there's people that are far from you or hardened by you or have been away from church and are leery of trusting again, God, I pray that you'd show them your love, your grace, your tenderness, your gentleness, your, your kindness. If there's somebody who needs to be rebuked, I pray that you'd show them your discipline and that you'd, you'd work in supernatural ways beyond what I could guess right now, beyond what I can ask or imagine, connect people to Jesus for life change. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I bet many of you have probably seen before uh, chase scenes in movies or TV shows that you watch. If you're watching, you know, the police chasing somebody, always the police cars, it's like they're not real people, and so it's going to end up with them, like, launching and landing upside down, and whoever it is that's being chased gets away. But then sometimes it's the bad guy that's being chased, and so you want the bad guy to be caught. And so some of you have probably, probably most of you have seen, whether you're, like, an Avengers fan, and that's coming out this weekend, some of you are going to see that, or maybe you're, you know, Born Identity or Bond or whoever it is, you've seen these chase scenes before. But I want to ask you a question that goes beyond, have you seen chase scenes? How many of you have been chased before? Doesn't have to be by the police. Could have been an older sibling. They want to beat the tar out of you. Whatever it was. 
been shaved by a dog. Okay, hands are like, okay, if you say that, I don't want to admit my felonies here, but okay, that's great. I want to share a story with you this morning because I was thinking about that, that I'm, I'll be honest with you, was hesitant to share with you. And the reason why, but I'm going to be more free in this service than I was the first service because some of the teenagers in the first service, I don't want you to think that I'm endorsing the things that I did in my past. This is a pre-Jesus story, okay? Does that, that qualify it a little bit for you? I was remembering a time when I was 15 years old, so I wasn't able to drive, I wasn't allowed to drive at this time, and my buddy's house had been TP'd. That means they threw a bunch of toilet paper on it, and we ended up finding out who did it. And the guy who did it was a guy who was mad at his older sister. His older sister was a senior in high school. We were just 15 years old. The guy who TP'd her was a junior in high school, big football player guy, a lot bigger than me. And so we decided we wanted to get revenge, but to get revenge, we had to take it to another level. We didn't teepee his house. We basically vandalized it. And so that's why I don't want to glorify that piece of it, but it kind of sets up the story and what happens. And he lived far enough away from my buddy that we couldn't walk over to his house at night. And we didn't think that asking his parents to take us over there was probably going to work out. And so that's why this next piece had to happen. His older sister had a car that we stole, borrowed, took that night. And what we did is we put it in neutral and we wheeled it down the driveway and then we pushed it down the street a little way so his parents wouldn't hear, hear the car start up. And then he and I and another buddy, because we thought, you know, we'll bring more fools into this, this gathering. Uh, we got into this car. We drive it. I decided to drive. I don't know why. I was the one that drove. But I decided I was going to drive. And I drive the car over there. And we didn't tee people. We threw some things at his house. One of my buddies shot a crossbow into his front door. Totally stupid. Don't do that. But the grand finale of all of our vandalism that we were going to do, and I, and I think it's okay to say this because I've already talked to the police about it, is we made a bomb. And the bomb was, and some of you are like, what in the world? Um, it was a two-liter that we emptied the soda out of, and then we put some laundry detergent in it and some little tin foil balls, and when you twisted the top on it, it would start to expand, and our goal was to blow up his mailbox. And so what we did is we show up, and we throw the stuff at his house, and the guy shoots the arrow. We didn't know that was going to happen. He just did it. But anyway, then we take the bottle, and we stick it in the mailbox, and we would have gotten away with it if we weren't such idiots. We got down the street, and like idiots, we were like, we didn't hear the mailbox go off. Let's go back. And so we go back, and by the time we come back, the guy's standing out in his front yard. He looks over as we're cruising by. All of our, we make eye contact with him, and then like a movie on cue, boom, the mailbox goes off. Okay, right there. Then that guy runs and gets in his car. He starts chasing us. My driving, I did not know how to drive at that point. Some of you would still affirm that. You've ridden with me today. But I was 15. My driving experience at that point was go-karts. And so I'm driving like 50 miles an hour. You know, just by God's grace, we didn't roll this car. We got back to my friend's house. We didn't really get away with it because he saw us. He knew who we were. But I remember when he was chasing us in his car, and we're driving in the other car, the adrenaline pumping, my heart's up in my throat. You know, you have somebody bigger than you, stronger than you coming after you. At that moment, he was smarter than us for sure. And it was scary. But then everything was fine until Monday when we went back to school. <laughs> On Monday, we get back to school. We get called down to the principal's office. And when we get to the principal's office, it's not the principal that's waiting for us. It's the police. And so we sit there and start talking to the police, and the police officer tells us, we're such idiots, we didn't even blow up his mailbox, we blew up his neighbor's mailbox. <laughs> Put on the wrong mailbox. Do you, do you know what it's like to get chased, though? You know, you ever been that way? I mean, when that guy was chasing us, even when we came out of the office and he's looking at us like, I am going to destroy you. You know, they were the police. There's this fear. You ever been chased by somebody bigger than you, stronger than you? Or maybe an animal's come after you? Here's something I want to tell you today. I look out and I see your faces, and some of you I know, some of you I know well, some of you I've never met before, but I know this about you. God's coming after you. He's coming after all of us. 
Some of you are running from him. You're like Jonah in the Old Testament. And God told you to do something, and you're fleeing. You're going, and maybe because of your sin, maybe because you just don't trust him, maybe because of some bad experience in the past, but let me tell you something. God's coming after you. And some of you, it's like I, I'm, you come here and sing songs and all that, but you know you've got these secret things in your life that nobody else, you're keeping in the darkness. God's coming after that. And some of you, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, and you think, oh, he's already got me. But does he have all of you? And so I want to ask you this question today as we get to our passage of Scripture. God's coming after you. What area of your life is He coming after today? If God could capture one area of your life today, what would it be? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 3 talking about God's relentless love. He just keeps coming. And He's coming after you. And Hosea chapter 3, what's going on in the book of Hosea, for those of you who haven't been with us, is that Hosea is the first of what we oftentimes refer to as the minor prophets. And we call them minor not because they're not important. They're, the books just aren't as long as some of the bigger prophets. So Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. And you find Hosea right after the book of Daniel. And in our Bibles, there's 12 books with different names on them. In the Hebrew Bible, there's just one long book. And Hosea was the first one. And Hosea is like the other prophets. The prophets are always called to live out their message. Not just preach a message, but to actually live out the message that they're preaching. And so for some guy, like Isaiah, I've mentioned to our church, Isaiah had to walk around naked and barefoot for three years, preaching, he's talking about the exile. And so he preaches, that's his object lesson. Ezekiel has to lay on one side for 390 days, on another side for 40 days. Hosea has what I think is the most difficult, probably the most beautiful and terrible assignment. And so you don't think I'm sensationalizing anything? I want to read it to you. It's in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. We'll get to chapter 3 in just a moment. In Hosea chapter 1, this sets the context. For those of you who haven't been with us, we took a week off. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the first thing he tells Hosea when he's going to be his prophet, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. And here's why. For the land, talking about his people, the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And then what happens in this book is that Hosea does it. He goes and he marries someone that he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. And they have a child together. And their marriage seems like it's great at the beginning. And then chapter 1 unfolds. It's almost like a TV show, the way these episodes work, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, first episode, second episode, third episode. The first episode's like, this is us. It's all about these three siblings. But here's what happens. Two of the siblings are illegitimate children. And so you see their names. It's what, what does an unfaithful marriage produce? These children of whoredom. And so one of them's called not my people. One of them's called receiving no mercy, no mercy for this child. It's a Hebrew name. It sounds nicer than that, but that's what it means. And then chapter 2 is all about the wife. Let me tell you something. You and I are the wife in the story. When we read Bible stories, a lot of times we identify with the hero. We're David, not Goliath. We're, we're whoever, like the good people, Peter, and not Judas. And like we pick the people that are like good people in the story. We're not the good people in this story. We're the unfaithful spouse. We're the prostitute. We're Gomer. Chapter 2 is all about Gomer. Chapter 2 says this in verse 2. Plead with your mother. So it's Hosea saying to his kids, she's not my wife. I'm not her husband. What we have is not a real marriage. But she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And then in chapter 2, what we see are these roads to restoration. How do we get back with God? And then in chapter 3, chapter 3 is the best chapter of the three that we've seen so far. Some people say that chapter 3 is the most glorious chapter in all of the Bible. I don't know if I go that far, but it's pretty amazing. Chapter 3 is all about God. It's about God's love for you. It's his relentless, he's coming after you, love for you. So join me in chapter 3. We'll read the whole thing together, and we'll come back and unpack it. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea, Go again, 
Love a woman who's loved by another man. Talking about Gomer. And so at this point, she's probably left him after they had their third child together. He's raising these children. Two of them aren't even his. He's raising them. She's gone. All the pain she's caused. And God says, go again. Love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Hosea, you were one of the children of Israel. Even as the Lord loves you. Though they turned to other gods and loved cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. And David, their king, David's been dead for hundreds of years. What are you talking about here? This is Jesus in the Old Testament, by the way. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so here we have, in this passage of Scripture, like a jolt back to reality. If you remember how chapter 2 ended, chapter 2 ended with this glorious, I'm going to lure my bride, I'm going to be responsive to her, she's going to be responsive to me, the, the not my people are going to be my people, the no mercy are going to be mercy, and you'll call me your God. Great message, awesome words of what could be and should be, vision, but not reality. Reality is chapter 3, it's like a jolt back to reality. Your wife's still whoring herself. In fact, if you read verse 2, she can't even prostitute herself anymore. She's a common slave now. And I want you to go love her again. That, by the way, church, is an impossible command. He's telling Hosea to do something Hosea could never do. It might be possible for Hosea to take her back. Okay, we're going we're gonna to get this thing. We're going to do some counseling. You can live in the house. It might be possible in his own strength to even renew some wedding vows, but to, lo to love? You want me to love after all the pain, after all the, all the stuff that's happened? Impossible. Here's something you need to know before we even get into the first point today is this. When God commands you to do something you're not capable of doing, which he does it all over the Bible, what he's doing, he's growing your faith and your dependence upon him deeper because when God commands you to do something you can't do, he will give you the ability to do it. St. Augustine used to famously pray, and it's often been preached in different language, different phrases all the time, but St. Augustine would pray, God, grant what you command. He's saying, you do the things you've commanded, because I can't do them. And then the second part of his prayer is, and command the things you desire. Go ahead, give it to us, all of it, all of what you want, all of your heart for us, command it to us, but then you've got to give us the ability to do it. I think it's Warren Wearsby that first made the, the phrase famous, that God always empowers what he demands. He's always going to give you the ability to do. You, can't, you might see some commands in Scripture and go, I could never do this. Bingo! You got the first step down. Now it's trusting Him to then supernaturally empower you to do it. And that takes us to our first point. Our first point is this, that God's relentless love, which is what we're talking about today, God's relentless love is a supernatural love. God's relentless love is a supernatural love. You see the command that's given to Hosea here? He doesn't just say, go love her. He says, go again. Love a woman who's loved by another. And then the key phrase is this, as the Lord has loved you, Hosea. And so here's the reality. I hope none of you leave here today and go, man, God loves me a lot. Because you only have half of the message. God doesn't just, doesn't just love you. He wants you, that love to be expressed through you. God does a supernatural love in you so he can do a supernatural love through you in the lives of other people. And so he's commanding Hosea here, you go love this woman who's unlovable. She, she doesn't deserve any love. She's not worthy of any love. She's done everything that's contrary to being loved. But I want, that's the way I love you. I want you to go love that way. That is not natural. That is supernatural. 
So think about what's natural. Natural is somebody wrongs you, you wrong them back. That's tit for tat when you're two years old. Somebody takes your toy, you take the toy back. Somebody says something about you, you say something back. That's natural, what we do. Natural is, when somebody does something like this in a marriage, I'm moving on. I'm done. I've done. got to find another person. I'm going to be happy. I need to, and they just, they're dead to you. They're, it's over. You've shunned them. That's natural. Natural is, I'm never going to forgive that person because if I forgive that person, I release control. I'm going to hold this over them. I've got this thing on them. I've got to have this power, but we don't realize it's actually holding on to us. Natural is that if I say that I forgive them and I love them, people are going to think I'm a fool, and I've forsaken my ability to be a martyr. And many of us, we love that. We love being the victim. We love playing this role where we get, I get attention. I get sympathy when people realize how bad I've been hurt. And so if I go and I say it's okay, then somehow I've forsaken this, and there's all kinds of psychological things that are happening in that moment. That's all natural. Supernatural is to love the way you've been loved. And the key word here that opens this whole passage up is it doesn't just say go love. Chapter 3, verse 1, read it again. It's definitely about love. Four times in one verse we get the word love here. Some of it's good love, some of it's not good love. The first one's definitely, it's God kind of love. It's go again. So you mean to have the kind of love that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, patient love, kind love, that keeps no record of wrongs kind of love. That's supernatural love. And when he says the word again here, it implies that he loved her before. If you go back to chapter 1, what you see is that when they started their relationship, even though he knew she was going to be unfaithful, even though he knew she would whore herself out because that was God's command to marry her, they had their first baby together. It looks like everything is like a normal relationship that's going well. Have you ever been in a relationship when you first fall in love with somebody, you're in this euphoric state? Everything they do is perfect. Can some of you remember back to that? Those of you who have been married for a long time, some of you are in that right, right now, and you're like, what do you mean? It's always like this. It's going to be amazing. We'll never fight. It's going to be so perfect. And even the stuff that your friends warn you about and your parents warn you about and their character, you're like, that's just potential. That's going to be great. And so when you dated her and she was so spontaneous and now six years in a marriage, you're going, she could just stick to a plan. Like, then we'd be Okay. It's like the very things that you loved about that person, you're now sitting in my office telling me how bad it is. It's like, he's so, he's so responsible with money while we're dating in the euphoric state. And then later, it's like, he's such a tightwad. I can't even buy an outfit. Like, what's going on here? You know, it's all these things that happen. You know, he's so, he's so focused. He doesn't need to listen. Now he won't listen to anything. He's talking about his own thing. And so it's all these things happen. And what, what's being commanded here is, go there again. Wait, but Hosea has been married to this one. They had a child. And the second child, he's maybe not sure about. The third child, he knows isn't his. And now she's gone. Remember the first time he confronted her? We don't get those details. Or maybe the first time he saw her in town with another man. Then she got to the place where she was so blatant, she didn't care what he knew. And now she's gotten to the place she's so used up, she's not even able to prostitute herself anymore. She's a common slave. And you're saying, go back to the beginning? You're saying go back to having those affections? I could, that is not feasible. That is not possible. That is not natural. He's saying, that's how I've loved you, Hosea. That phrase, the phrase that's key is toward the middle of the verse. As the, Lord, as the Lord loves, you love the way you've been loved. And guess what? I'm coming after you, Hosea. And I want you to know this, experience this, not just have it in your mind. I'm coming after you. It's a supernatural love that you could never do on your own. It's like a story I read this week. Uh, Corey Tenboom was writing the story. Some of you have heard of her before. She's a survivor of one of the concentration camps during the Holocaust. She was caught hiding Jews in her home in Holland and got arrested, ended up in this prison camp with some of her family. 
And she was talking about how one night after she had survived, she was sharing at this church in Germany, in Munich, Germany, down in the basement of this church. And she felt like the Lord wanted her to share a message of forgiveness with the people that were there and the things that they were going through. And so she shared this message. She said, being from Holland, the sea was never far from her mind. And so the analogy she used for the sermon was that God forgives you just like he takes your sin and he throws it in the deepest part of the ocean, never to be brought up again. Preaches this message. She said the stoicness of that day and age and what was going on in Germany. People didn't really talk to each other after the service. They just kind of got up, filed out like we heard the lecture, good lecture, and we get out of this room. And they were doing that, except there was one guy in the middle of the room who instead of filing out of the room was coming against the crowd and coming towards her. And she saw him. He was a heavy set guy. He was wearing a gray overcoat. He had a brown hat in his hand that he was just holding and he was kind of shuffling against this crowd. And she's watching him and he's wearing a gray overcoat, holding a brown hat. But then it hit her. She remembered him, but she pictured him in his uniform. And he was wearing the hat from the concentration camp and the blue suit. And she remembered who he was, but she wondered if he remembered who she was. And she remembered a time walking in front of him naked. She said it was a pathetic scene. There were all these clothes in the middle of the room, shoes in the middle of the room, and here we were, all these prisoners were being filed, and she could still picture her sister, Betsy, who died at that camp in front of her. So thin, you could see her ribs, the skin just on her ribs, and coming into this room and shuffling in front of this guard. And she remembered this guard, and the guard walked up to her. That was a great message, and he held his hand out. That was a great message about God's forgiveness. And he cast our sins into the deepest part of the ocean. He just held his hand out, and she couldn't, she couldn't grab it. So I spoke so freely about forgiveness, but now it's standing right before me. And then the guy said, I was at the camp that you mentioned, I was a guard. And she said at that moment it was clear that he didn't remember her. Thousands of people had gone through there. So he didn't remember her, but she remembered him. And he said, and since that time, I've asked God for forgiveness, and I've become a Christian. And I know he's forgiven me. And those moments he dropped his hand back down, but he popped it back out, and he said, but I want to hear it from you. Will you forgive me? And she said in that moment she was thinking about the death of her sister. And just because you ask, I'm just going to say that's okay. And like in her mind, she's thinking that, but she knows the Bible. She knows that God commands us to forgive, that she's been forgiven daily. She needs forgiveness. She's asking God for forgiveness daily, but she can't forgive this guy who's standing here. And she knows, because if you don't forgive others, then I don't forgive you. And she's like, have I really received? She's wrestling with all these things in her mind. Well, this guy stands there with his hand out. And she said it felt like hours. She said, I knew other people who had, had been in prison and had forgiven their captors. And they were free. And then there were some people who wouldn't forgive their captors. And even though they were walking around the streets, it was like they were still in captivity to bitterness and to anger. And she like knew what she had to do. She couldn't do it. She said, but then I thought, I know what I, what I can do is I can't stick my hand up. She said, mechanically, woodenly, I stuck my hand up. I put it in his hand. I held his hand. And then the words came out. I forgive you. With all of my heart, I forgive you. And then she said she felt this love coming like through her arm, through her shoulder, and into her hand. She said, in that moment, I felt God's love like I'd never felt God's love before. The affections followed the actions. What she did, it was, that wasn't natural. She couldn't do that in her own power. God enabled the thing he commanded. That's supernatural love, supernatural forgiveness, supernatural what God's commanding us to do and the way that he's loving us is supernatural because here's the reality. When we hear the story, we automatically identify with Corey Ten Boom, don't we? You're the guard. You killed God's son. Through your sin, before he ever even went to the cross, he was being put, nailed to the cross because of your sins. After he was on the cross, it was your sins who nailed him to the cross. 
See, we're, we're not some innocent victim in this situation. We're Gomer. We're the adulterous spouse. We're not Hosea. That's God's love. Chapter 3 is about God. Chapter 2 is about us. Quit your whoring. Take that away from your face, from between your breath. That's us. We don't like that language. It's in the Bible. Tell God you don't like it. And what's he talking about when he says that? It's not just people who've committed adultery. Although, let me pause and say, I know that some of you, this story is very real to you. Because you were the adulterous spouse. Or you were the one that was hurt. Let me say, I'm not trying to trivialize that in any way. That is, that is a big deal. On both counts. And you might know this better than anybody else, how serious and what difficult work this is. But some of you think, well, I haven't done that, so that doesn't count for me. No. The New Testament tells us, you use the same tongue to praise, people, praise God, that you speak evil against people, that's spiritual adultery. Anytime you take something or someone, put it in the place of God, the priority that only God deserves, that is, God considers that adultery against Him. And we're all guilty. He says, you love, you love, you love, though. What does it like to hear those words? It reminds me of the words from the cross. You know the words from the cross? Some churches will do a whole sermon series on Jesus' words from the cross. There's lots of things he said from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you think about some of the different words from the cross that were said. And I was thinking about it this week, and it's almost like you could hear the words. And I think, well, what were those words like for some of the people that were there to hear those words from the cross? What about the people that when Pilate came out and he said, I find no crime against this man. What do you want me to do? And they start to chant, crucify him. Because they're following the religious leaders that were wrong. They didn't want Jesus because they wanted their power. They, wanted their, they had their own God. So crucify. What was it like to hear those words from the cross? Can you, do you know the words? Do you know the different words from the cross? Or what was it like for the people that mocked and beat Jesus, put a thorn crown on his head? What were the people that spit on him as he walked by, carrying the cross? To hear the words from the cross? But what got me was when I started really thinking about the Roman soldier that would have to nail Jesus to the cross. Because there was a real person who did that. Like, our sins nailed him to the cross, but there was a real person that was there that actually nailed his wrist to the cross. And that guy probably had a wife and probably had kids. He probably executed a lot of people. It was his job. It was just his job, just what he did. And most of them were criminals, and so he probably justified it in his mind. But I wonder if when he was nailing Jesus to the cross, if he looked at that sign that said, King of the Jews, and wondered, is he really? Is he really the Messiah? And what was it like for him, after Jesus got hung on the cross, to hear the words from the cross, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. What was it like to hear those words? Those words are for you and for me. We're the ones that need the forgiveness. We're the ones that are undeserving. See, we don't grasp this love as long as we, and many of us have the spirit of entitlement, the spirit like we deserve God's love. We won't say that. Like if I ask you, what do you believe about God's love? You'd say, I don't deserve God's love. But we, let me ask you this. you have any pride in your life? Got any, got any self-righteousness in your life? Is there any judgmentalness in the way that you look at other people? Let me tell you something, you don't get it. Any gossip on your lips? You don't get it. Any self-righteousness in your heart? You don't get You don't get that you don't deserve God's love. Father, forgive them. I don't know. You look at what we do, it's so ridiculous. What he says at the end of this verse, just verse 1 still, look at verse 1, the end of it. It says, you love, you love her the way that I love you, even though, look at what it says, they turn to their other gods like we do with money and selfish ambition and other people's opinions and all the things we go after. And then it says this, and love cakes of raisins. <laughs> this is such a ridiculous illustration, but true. 
and, and you read Bible commentators, and they get all technical, and they can spend all kinds of days reading about this. It's like these raisin cakes, these dried up grapes that they had, and make these cakes, and some, in Song of Solomon, they're mentioned as an aphrodisiac. Sometimes they're seen in neutral environments. Sometimes it's along with idol worship, and you can be like, what's going, what, is Jesus, what is he saying? What's God saying here to us? And I love what John Piper says when he translates this verse. He says, they love other gods and hostess Twinkies. Which I think, good, make it simple. I like that. And it got me thinking about, I remember one time, Pastor Brad, our children's pastor, we got in a debate at one time about desserts and different desserts we ate as kids. He brought in a bunch of little Debbie's cakes, you know, the oatmeal cream pies, and then the cupcakes with this white swirly on the top, which for some reason I thought those were good at one time. Some of you might still like them. It makes you feel sick now when I eat them. And, and you eat these other moon pies and all kinds of different things that were there. And, and if, you, if you can get that picture in your mind of that, then you get what's being said here in this verse. I'm coming after you with my unfailing, infinite, eternal, almighty, transforming, unrelenting, restoring love. And you want moon pies. But to us, we're like, oh no, it's money, or it's sex, or it's politics, or it's my selfish ambition, or it's, it's anything, anyone that we put in the place of God. And then it's like the rich young ruler, if you know that story, in Luke chapter 18 in the New Testament. Where it's like, hey, the only thing you got to do is he knows his idol. He doesn't tell everybody to come follow him, sell, give up all your money and come follow me. But he tells this guy, I know your idol. Go give up all your money, come follow me. And the guy leaves. He picked a moon pie. And so do many of us. God's coming after you. He's coming after that moon pie. He's coming after the darkness in your heart. He's coming after your false gods. He's going to show you. He's going he's to chew you up and spit you out, just so you know. That's where, that's where that ends. It's a lie. Because you see in verse 1, it says that she's loved by another. Why in the world is she for sale? It's a lie. That love is a lie. And so, second point is this, that God's relentless love is a sacrificial love. We'll go to verse 2. God's relentless love is a sacrificial love. It's a, it's a supernatural love we see in verse 1, and in verse 2 we see it's a sacrificial love. So here's verse 2. Pretty short verse. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. This is a crazy verse to me. This is the equivalent, this is the Old Testament version of what we read earlier in worship in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here she is, she's on the slave market, and it says here that Hosea, I went, he went and bought his own wife. Who's he paying? Why is he paying for his own wife? You think about what's happening here in this passage of Scripture, this gets me so excited about the Bible, by the way, just the way that God speaks to us through his word. And I was thinking about it, going verse by verse, it's one of the benefits. As you see some of these things, you don't see if you just jump into a passage. And, and we'll do topical messages in the future. There's a place for topical sermon series. But here you go verse by verse through, and you think about what the commandment was that I read to you when we were setting the context in chapter 1 and verse 2. You can go back and look at it if you want to. You want to see it in the Bible yourself. The first commandment that Hosea receives, go take. Okay. I can do that. I can, I, can go I can go take. But then chapter 3 and verse 1, go again, love. Can't do that. But what does it look like to love? Which is what you would think that verse 2 would say. But isn't it interesting that verse 2 doesn't say, so he went and loved her. Isn't that logically? Go take. So he goes and he takes her. And they get married. They have kids. It goes south. Then God says, go love. And it doesn't say, I went and loved her. It says, I went and I bought her. So it doesn't talk about affections, it talks about actions. Actions oftentimes precede the affections, by the way. We're going to see that unpacking this here with how the relationship goes and how the restoration needs to take place. But love's an action. You've got to do something. And let me tell you something, we tell our whole church, 
We want you to have one person you're sharing the gospel with. Let me tell you something about that. If you just go and tell them the gospel and they never see the gospel, that is an empty message. That's why we also tell you to be praying for those people because God will cultivate your heart for them, by the way. That's one of the reasons why we say that. And go and care for those people. Demonstrate that love for them. Let them see that. And let me tell you something about love. Love always costs you something. Biblical, godly love is always going to cost the giver of the love something. It's going to cost you something. So he says here, it's put it into action. And so what you have here, remember chapter 2, and so amazing? It says, I'm going to lure her, I'm going to woo my adulterous wife back to me. And remember the promises? God gets down on his knee, kind of like the, the bridegroom to his wife. and says, I'm going to woo her back. I'm going to say, and I told you guys, if you're a Southbridge guy, when you propose, you get on your knee. Shakespeare, I don't care. Bible verses, whatever you got. You give the best words you got, and you say them. God does that in chapter 2. He gives us, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your valley of acre, which is their greatest pain. I'm going to turn it into hope, a door of hope. And he says, I'm going to be responsive to you, and you're going to be responsive to me. And there's going to be a new covenant. And no mercy is going to become mercy, and not my people will be my people, and they'll call me their God. It's going to be amazing. But then that's not what was really happening. And so he could have just given those words to Hosea and said, go preach that message, Hosea. You're my man. You're my prophet. Here's the words. Here's the message. Go say them. But he's saying, I want you to go live it. And that's true for all of us, by the way. We're God's mouthpiece. He doesn't want us just to say the message. He wants us to live the message. This is kind of a put up or shut up passage of scripture here in, this, in, in the Bible. Are you going to go do it? It's one thing that you know that I commanded you. It's one thing that you know the truth. It's one thing that you can preach the message, but you, will you do it? Will you live it? Any of you have played sports before, you know the put up or shut up language. Anytime you've gone to a you know, park to play, maybe play pickup basketball or something, there's always a guy out there whose mouth is bigger than his game. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are that guy. I can be that guy. Just, you know, I'm, not, I'm not good. Don't be out there. I must be butter because I'm on a roll like they're dribbling around. Can't hit a shot. And they just end. That day when they leave, they go, I, just, I was off today. The problem is they're off every day. That's the problem. They're always off. The Bible talks to us about that too as Christians in our Christianity. You want to put up or shut up verse from the New Testament? It's 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Read it with me. It's on the screen. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. It says this. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Not know about God. Not know Bible verses. Do you want to know if you're a Christian or not? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So you're not just doing a supernatural work in you. He wants to do a supernatural work through you. And if you want to know if he's done the work in you, is it happening through you? Here what we see in this passage is Hosea does it. He actually puts it into action. I'm trying to think about the scene here of what's happening. We don't know all the cultural background exactly during this time or exactly even who some of the people are in, in this time period. There's a bunch of theories about it and the historical background. Tim Keller believes that this, with this, the nation of Israel at this point will be just like the surrounding nations. And so if you, if you believe that's true, 8th century B.C., they're not a Christian nation. They're God's people. But they're just like all the other nations. They trust in kings. They trust in politics. They're not looking to God. They're adulterous. There's all kinds of things about them. It would be clearly they're not, they're not following God. And so what would happen then if that's true with this scene is that Gomer would be brought out naked or almost naked to be bid on in a public auction. And so you're trying to imagine what that would be like. And Keller says that if she's naked like that, just like Jesus was on the cross, naked, shame. Adam and Eve in the garden, no fig leaves. They're being brought out here. And she might cover her face with her hair. If her hair hasn't been shaved off, she's a slave. She'd probably at least close her eyes to hide the shame. And imagine coming out for public auction, because you're Gomer in the story, and you got your eyes closed, 
And are you praying, God, just give me a good slave master, just give me a generous slave master, or do you, are you past caring? Are you so broken in your life? It doesn't even matter anymore. Because that's, that's where she's at. I was thinking about it. I think, remember week one, if you were here week one, I told the story of a prostitute named Annie, Annie Lobert. I put it on my Facebook page. You can go look it up if you want. And she talks about how when she first started prostituting herself, she was on top of the world. She thought she had power. She thought she had control. She was making a bunch of money. It's like all lies. There's a turning point. And she gets broken. And then she's got cancer, and she's still selling herself. And she's scrubbing herself. I just wanted to get clean after it's done and, and thinking, God must be so angry with me. And I, I imagine that's where Gomer's at in this. And then people start bidding on you to buy you. Five shekels. Ten shekels. Then you hear a voice from your past that seems like a lifetime ago. It's your husband. And he says, 15 shekels and a bunch of barley. The total price equals probably 30 shekels, the amount that you would pay for a common slave. So you say, well, yeah, I thought the point was that it's sacrificial, Scott, that it's sacrificial love, and if it's just a common slave price, that's not a sacrificial dollar amount. Well, we know it's sacrificial for Hosea because of the way that he pays. See, dollar amounts to some of us might sound small, and for some of us it might sound big. For $10 to some of you might not be a big deal, but for some people it might be a sacrifice. Some of you here might spend $50 or $100 on a meal, maybe even today. But there's people that live on less than a dollar a day. I promise they're not going to spend $50 or $100 on a meal. The numbers are all relative. And we know it's a big amount for Hosea because it says how he paid. It says, so I bought her for 15 shekels. That's the cash that he has to give. And a homer and a leketh, a barley. And so he's got to bring in kind. This is not liquid. This is not liquid money for him. He might have to borrow it to get it. Sacrificial. This is the gospel in the Old Testament, so you know. Because Jesus had to pay for you and for me. See, the wages of our sin, what we earn, is death, separation from God. So he has to pay. There's an incredible verse in the New Testament. It's in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It shows up in, like, devotionals all the time. And Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And oftentimes the application is that you should be a servant leader if you're a leader, or you should be serve some capacity in your church. All that's good, but what about the last half of the verse? We never talk about the last half because it's uncomfortable. You know the last half of the verse says? And to give his life as a ransom for men. A ransom? That's like for kidnappers. What are you talking about, a ransom? So you can ask yourself the question, what is the ransom, and who's the ransom being paid to? Well, let me tell you what the ransom is. The ram ransom's not silver or gold. It's not barley. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Because there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Your sins can't be forgiven if blood's not shed. And so blood has to be shed, and it's the blood of his own son. But who's he paying? Who's he paying the ransom to? Let me tell you who it's not. It's not Satan. God doesn't know anything to Satan. It's not some death angel. It's not to you. It's not to your sin, metaphorically. God's paying himself. It's because it's his wrath that's coming after you. His wrath is going to come upon you because of your sin. But he pays that debt. He pays the ransom. On the cross, Jesus was paying the Father. That's how the cross answers the question, how can God be righteous and holy and just and merciful and gracious and loving at the same time? The cross. Because he pours out his wrath on his son, that pays the ransom for your sins. You're Gomer. He said, I want relationship with you. And you're already mine, but I will pay for you. I'll buy you back because you've adulterated yourself to culture, to society, to your false god, to your moon pies. But I still want you, and I am coming for you. He's coming after you. 
And his love, his love is a supernatural love. He naturally should just wipe us all out. Supernaturally, he comes for you. His love is a sacrificial love. He sacrificed his own son for you. The question is, have you received that love? Does it move from your head? Now, do you know the gospel? Now, do you know the truth? Now, did you pray? Does it move from your head into your heart? Or does it become real? You've experienced it in your life. You know his grace. You know his forgiveness. You know his love. While you were a sinner, Jesus died for you. But his love, his love is a transforming love too. And keep going. Keep going through this passage. First, we saw that his love is it's a supernatural love. We saw that it's a sacrificial love. And the third point is this, that God's relentless love is a transforming love. And so remember the image here in our passage. Hosea has just bought his wife from the slave market in verse 3. And I said to her, his first words to her, when he gets her back, who knows, this might have been years. Not how are the kids doing? Now, hey, I, I own you. You do what I say from now on. Look what he says. You must dwell as mine for many days. You can underline many days. We'll come back to that. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And then look at this. So will I also be to you. He just paid more money than he even asked for. And he doesn't say, you do what I tell you. I'm your master. He says, I want to be your husband. This is God relating with us, so you know. Some of you only know how to relate with God as king, as master, as lord, as supreme being. He's also your husband. He is tender and gentle and kind and patient. That's, he's saying, I want you, I'm going to be faithful to you and I want you to be faithful to me. And then you go on in verse 4, explains verse 3. It says four, and so that's why we know it's explaining. It says four. Here's why I said what I said in verse three. For the children of Israel, oh, so this isn't even really about Hosea and Gomer. It's about God and his people. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days, there's that word again, verse three and in verse four, many days, underline that, without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Now, we don't have time to unpack each one of those, but let me tell you what you'll find. If you go through these things, you'll find, and you can do it on your own, you'll find some of them were good. Some of these are good things. Some of them were bad, household gods. Some of them were neutral, prince, king. Not necessarily a bad thing. It can go either way. Depends on who it is. And what he's saying, you're going to go without those. For many days, here's what he's saying. We're going to do work together. We don't just get back. We're not, he's not like some mystical. This isn't Disney where it's like, hey, there was a problem. Now it's all good. Sprinkle some pixie dust on it. And everybody's smiling at the end of the show. We're getting back together, Gomer, but we're not hopping back in bed together, is what he's saying to her. You want the real intimate language that's being happened here. We're going to have a time, you're not going to be with any other men, I'm going to be with any other women, we're not going to be together either, for many days. Not forever, but for many days, we're going to do the work, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to remove all that stuff for the children of Israel, it's these things that Satan used to lead them astray. Some of them were good, some of them were bad, some of them were neutral. And so it'd be like saying to us, hey, for you, you need to take a break from politics for a little while. That's a neutral thing, by the way. But you're putting your trust in it. It's become a bad thing. It's become evil. We're gonna, you, you, no porn. That's a bad thing. That's household gods. No porn. You're, you can't have that. Many days. The rest of your life, many days. That's how long many days. Or, or, or your ministry, maybe. So you got, you've got here ephod. That's, that's, not, that's nothing wrong with that. You've got these things in here that are good things. You, can't, you don't need to be doing that right now because you've made it into an idol. You've made it into a god. So stop. We've got to do a work. God promised he began a good work in you when you trusted Christ. He's going to be faithful to complete that work. He's going to do the work. And then in verse 5, he tells us what the transformation looks like. Afterward, 
the children of Israel shall return. That's repentance, which, by the way, is not the, just the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. It's throughout. Regular repentance. It's turning from your sin. Shall return and, not just repent, seek the Lord. Go, he's coming after you. You go after him. That's what it should look like in a relationship. Seek the Lord their God. And David their king. We already told you who that is. That's Jesus. Comes in the line of David. Read the New Testament. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's a transforming love. But before there can be the transforming love, there has to be the work. That's one of the things I love. It's like Hosea is saying to Gomer here, God's saying to you here, I'm willing to do the work. Some of you might remember uh, two weeks ago when we were in chapter 2, and we started off the restoring love that we were talking about in chapter 2 because we saw the roads to restoration that I used the analogy of HGTV. And I did a little survey of our congregation that day. I found out a bunch of y'all like Chip and JoJo, which is awesome. But the better news was you had a picture in your mind of what restoration looked like. And I told you the problem I have with HGTV, I watch it and it's all great and all that kind of stuff, but it's basically glorified before and after pictures. Like here it is, and we were kind of skipped the process. Here it is before, looks terrible, it's been neglected, whatever problems. And then here it is after. Wow, that's like a totally different place. It's amazing, it's awesome. Everybody loves that. A friend of mine from the church emailed me. She told me I could share this email. I don't just share all your emails. She, she said you could share this email. And she said your analogy really resonated with me. She said, you know that my marriage is not good. And she said, a couple years ago, I stopped watching all movies and TV shows that have to do with love stories. She just, it was painful to her to see the, the romantic love stories. She said, so I started just watching HGTV. And there was this one show that stuck out, Love It or List It. I don't know if you're familiar with Love It or List It or not. I'm trying to watch your faces, see if you're receptive. A couple of you are smiling. A couple of you are like, I don't know what in the world. I don't even watch TV. Christians shouldn't watch TV, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> And so here's how Love It or List It works for the rest of us here. Uh, Love It or List It is there'll be one couple that they've got, the, and there's always one person that wants to stay at the house, and there's one person that wants to buy a new house. It's always, I don't know how they find all these people. That's the, the dilemma there. And then they'll have a budget for all the things they want to fix in the house and all the things they want to fix, all the things they need to fix in order to stay there. So it's like a wish list and a needs list, and they go through that, and then they go and look at all uh, new houses that have all those things for them. And so they've got to decide, are they going to love it and stay at the house? Are they going to list it and go to the new house? Inevitably, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it or think about watching it, now you can plug your ears, I'm about to tell you something. Every episode, here's what happens. They start to do the work on the house, and they're working through the wish list, and they find something they didn't know was there. And now we've got to cut something from the wish list. I'm so sorry if that ruined every show for you. That's how it always works, okay? And then the person who, who was wanting to move always says how terrible it is and you're stealing my dreams, like it's going to be awful. We're not going to get all the, you know, the extra sunroom we wanted in the back or whatever it was that was going to happen. And so then they get upset and there's this struggle in the marriage. And then my friend was sharing with me, she was watching these, the ones that she's watched at least. And it seems like everybody picked the new house. She goes, I would get mad. I just wanted them to stay. I wanted them to do the work. And then she admitted to me, she said, when I heard your message, I realized that I was using the show as an analogy for my marriage. And I was upset. So many people just start over. And the new house has problems too. They just don't know it. So I just wanted them to stay and do the work. Here's what God's saying. I'll do the work. I'll do the work on you. I'll do the work in you. I love you. But, but there's work to do. And so we've got to deal with this, the ephod. We've got to deal with this household gods. We've got to deal with the prince and the king. And, and, and there's gonna be, it's going to seem tough, but actually his, his removing these things is his provision in your life, just so you know. Say, so how can taking something away be provision? Well, it'd be like this. It'd be like today, if I go home and my kids start coming to me and they're like, I was out in the backyard and I found these berries and I realized they're poisonous berries. I'm like, they're so good. And I'm like, they're going to kill you. And my kids are like, well, I'll just eat enough until I get sick. Like, that's not a good compromise. I'm taking the berries away as provision for your life. 
That's what God's saying. I'm going to remove this stuff from your life. That's actually me providing so that you can receive my love. Because sin leads to death. And we read that in the Bible, but we don't think it's true. And so we'll just play with it enough. Maybe just up to the line. He's going, no, 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 we've got to get rid of that. We're going to do the work. But he's saying, I'll do the work. Because I'm coming for you. He loves you. There's a relentless love. and He's coming after you. And I asked you at the beginning of the service, what area of your life would he come after? Is it the same? Is it the same right now? What area is he coming after in your life? And does he have all of you? Because if he has all of you, we see in this passage too that the fruit of what that'll look like, it'll mean continual repentance in your life, regularly repenting in your life. It'll mean faithfulness. And so we see repentance in verse 5. We see faithfulness in verse 3. And that, that you'll be seeking him. Not only is he seeking you, but you're actively going after him. That's what this love relationship is supposed to look like. It's reciprocal, responsive. Are you going after him? Because he's coming after you. 